We're going to have a one-week sermon today called Lifestyle Repentance. We've spent several weeks on Mark chapter 13, but I want to share with you some principles that God has shared with me from Psalm 32. And I know this, this is going to impact a lot of people today, especially some of our young people, but really everybody. Uh, There are some principles that are going to help us with our walk with the Lord. Because here's the deal. This sermon is for those who are struggling with habitual sin. Struggling with certain sins over and over again. It may be your temper. maybe your thought life. It may be uh, being negative. A mistake you make over and over again. So for people in that situation, the sermon's going to be extremely relevant. Which, you know what this means? This means the sermon is relevant to every single person. Okay? Let's be real. Because until we stand before Jesus Christ, we're going to have some struggle with sin. When we see him and we see perfection, he will make us perfect. But here is the good news. Struggle with sin is a good thing because it means we haven't just laid down and and just let sin reign and rule in our lives. We haven't let sin dominate us. The struggle means we do have regrets and we may have setbacks, but we're moving forward. We're trying to live a life that pleases the Lord. And the struggle means we're not done yet because God has made us victorious. God has made us overcomers. So struggle's not a bad thing. Struggle means we're still in the fight. And I believe that Psalm 32 is going to give all of us great, great hope who are in the fight against the flesh and long to please the Lord. My good friend Dick Brogdon writes a devotional that I read almost every day that inspired me. And God has spoken this through Uh, God has spoken this word to my life, and I'm happy to share it with you, too. I was coaching football a few years ago. There was a kid on my team, came from a good family, real polite guy. But he kept jumping off sides. He was on defense, and they would say, down, set, hut. And he'd jump off sides when the count was on, too. So I would tell him, watch the ball. Watch the ball. So he said, yes, sir. Coach, I'm sorry. So sorry, coach. So they would do it again. Down, set, hut. Jumped off sides again. Watch the ball. Again and again, it would happen, and he kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Finally, in exasperation, I just told him, don't be sorry, be right. You can say I'm sorry all you want to, but watch the ball. It's not enough just to feel bad. Those negative feelings or those challenging feelings need to lead to something substantial. Here's a scripture. It's not in your notes. You'll want to write this down because I added it after The review was printed. But 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. Godly grief produces a repentance. Other versions say godly sorrow leads to repentance. Meaning this is that the emotion of regret or the emotion of being sorrowful or being sorry has to go somewhere. It can't just be a feeling. It has to be the feeling that leads to change. So the word repentance is frequent in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, the word repentance was really calling a whole group of people uh, personified typically in a king or a prophet or a judge who was leading a whole group of people. And when the king or the judge or the prophet repented, all the people would repent. 
So it was very much associated with societal sins and a whole mindset of a people and specifically a leader. In the New Testament, it changes and becomes more personal. And so in the New Testament, as John the Baptist prepared us for Jesus and called us to repentance, now also the word repentance means a change of your mind. Not just a change of behavior, but a change of your mind also. So if you take the Hebrew word of repentance and then the Greek word of repentance in the New Testament, I think we come up with a really helpful definition of what repentance is. And you can write this down, fill in the blanks if you so choose on the review. Repentance is a change of mind to agree with God that produces a turnaround in behavior. This is really important because whenever we get caught doing something wrong, sometimes we're sorry we got caught. Whenever we have done something that we know doesn't please God, sometimes there's that regret or embarrassment. But it's not just getting caught and changing our behavior because we can do that for a few days, a few weeks, a few months. But if we don't agree with God, and have the repentance where our mind changes and we say, God has said this is wrong or this is not good for me or this is off limits. And I'm not just going to change my behavior because God said it was wrong. I'm going to change the way I think. I'm going to change my mindset so that I'm in agreement with what God has said. Because God does not put moral restrictions or does not identify some things as sin just to kind of produce this moral obstacle course that if we get through the obstacle course in enough time or we finish, uh, then we're qualified to be as children. That's how we incorrectly sometimes characterize the law of God as something testing us. And there is a test within it, but it's not a test in itself. So God is not doing and giving us restrictions only to test us. He's giving us restrictions to protect us. His laws are good for us. His laws benefit us. His laws restrict us in areas we need to be restricted. And it lets us say no to things we need to say no to. And lets us say yes to the right things and the correct things in our life. So it is, I want you to see today, brothers and sisters, that repentance is not a negative thing in your life. Repentance is not something bad. Repentance is good. It's positive. It's the pathway. It's the doorway. Repentance is a gift to you. Because God wants his best for your life, he's given us repentance. A friend of mine, and actually I've had several friends of mine in this situation, but I'm thinking of one in particular, had a terrible job. Now I understand that a lot of times we need to be more content with the job God's given us, and we need to just you know, allow him to work through what we have. But Sometimes you've seen it happen. Maybe it's happened to you. There's just a working environment, a culture that is so bad for you, so negative that it makes you less human. And that's certainly the case for my friend. We'll call him Bill because that sounds like a good hypothetical name, does it not? So Bill had this job and everybody knew this job had a horrible culture. It was just not good for him. And he, he changed jobs. He got something new. His working situation was different. And I would hear things like this about Bill. I would hear this statement. Bill looks 10 years younger. Bill looks like the weight of the world's off of him. He had a 
hop in his step. He had a smile on his face because that suffocating culture, that that atmosphere that made him less of who God had called him to be and that was just bad for him in particular had been lifted. There was no more burden. There was no more oppression. There was no, more, there was no longer a cloud just kind of suffocating his mind and spirit. And he literally, you could see on his countenance, he was a different person. Have you seen that situation before where someone changed one environment and went to a new environment and they were literally a different person after that happened? Now, if this happened to my friend for an unhealthy job situation, how much more do we benefit when we are walking in repentance? When the burden and the suffocating cloud of sin has been lifted off of us. When we're no longer being chained down by the sin in our life. We're no longer being shackled by the sin in our life. We're free. The burden's lifted. We just... Walk a little quicker. Our countenance is better. We are more free to be the men and women God has called us to be. Here's my first point today. It's this. You got a blank you can fill in if you want to. Repentance increases our happiness. This is the exact opposite of what culture and even pre, our predisposition towards religion uh, causes us to think. Because we think repentance is a negative act in our life. We think repentance is a consequence of being caught. We think repentance means that there is something flawed in us and we have to repent. And when we said the Apostles' Creed earlier uh, this morning during worship, I talked about the good tradition that comes from our faith. But there's also some negative traditions from our faith. And I think one of the negative traditions out of the Roman Catholic Church was the concept of penance where people to be absolved from their sin had to pay some kind of penance. And that has caused us either directly or indirectly uh, to believe that repentance is a negative thing, that we're caught, we're busted, we've got to pay a price. Well, here's the truth. If you understand the nature of the gospel, the nature of the cross, and what Jesus did for us is that the penalty has already been paid. The punishment has already been taken upon Jesus. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus was the punishment for our sin. Jesus paid the penance for our sins. This is good news. We don't have to prove that we're repentant. We just have to accept the repentance that he has already paid. This causes a happiness and a joy to come into our life. Now, you ready for the text? I never preach this long without getting to the text, but... Hey, different, something different is always good. Here it is, Psalms 32, starting with verse 1. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and whose spirit is no deceit. Can I remind you, you've seen it happened in your life, you've observed it in culture, and now the word of God is telling you that a key, a pathway to happiness is to walk in repentance. Repentance is not bad. Repentance is not a negative negative experience. Repentance, friends, it's a gift. It's a gift to you. 
Jesus has opened the door and he said, because I love you, I want you to change your mind, agree with God about this sin, about this violation in your life, and turn around your behavior to please the Lord. This is an opportunity. God has placed a pathway before us. He has placed a, a green light before us. It's called repentance that we can turn to the Lord and we can be healed. We can be set free. We can walk in the forgiveness that he has for us. All over America today, there are literally millions of men and women who are incarcerated. They're in prison. A high percentage, or at least a significant percentage of these prisoners have no hope of ever getting out of prison. No hope for parole. They have multiple life sentences placed upon them. They're gonna live the rest of their existence inside a barbed wire fence, inside a prison cell. But many of these men and women today, they're gathering at church services. They're sitting under the ministry of a chaplain. They're walking in the forgiveness of the Lord. And even though that they have a sentence that in this life, they'll never be free outside of those walls or outside of those fences. They are more free than many of us are today in this comfortable church service. Because freedom and happiness doesn't come often from what our social situation is or what's happening on the outside. It comes from what's happening on the inside. And that's why I love what the scripture says. How joyful is the one. He may be a prisoner. She may not have hope or she may not have an opportunity for social advancement or to, uh, to advance her career or to advance his family. But how joyful is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man, not the rich man, not the man who doesn't have to worry about material needs, not the man who doesn't have a challenge in his life, but how joyful, verse two says, is the man that the Lord does not charge with sin. This is an incredible realization that happiness, we're searching for happiness in so many different ways and so many different methods and so many different uh, choices we make. But happiness comes through repentant lifestyle with agreeing with God and what his word says. That's why I love Jude verse 24. There's only one chapter in Jude, but I put one dot dot, not to confuse you. Jude, one chapter, verse 24 says this, and many scriptures give this same sentiment. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. I'm so glad the scripture doesn't tell us we're blameless because of self-discipline or we're blameless because of our own haughty righteousness or we're, we're, we're uh, blameless because of behavioral modification or we're blameless because of a psychological trick. In fact, this doesn't say we're gonna be blameless by anything a humanistic step-by-step uh, -step program will give you. We're blameless not because of us, we're blameless because of him. We're blameless because there was only one who's ever been sinless, who's ever been blameless, who walks in perfect holiness, who walks in perfect righteousness, and he was the substitute he took the punishment upon himself that you and I chose through sin and he paid the penance for us. Is that good news? All right. Have you ever been watching the news? This happens to me sometimes and I hear this news report about, and I see a senior citizen who's been involved in theft or some type of weird drum, drug crime. And I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe someone that old has been involved in a crime like that. You would think someone in their senior years, in their 80s, 
would, would be okay, wouldn't be involved in something like that. Then as the news story unfolds, you find out John Doe, age 42, or Jane Doe, age 38. It's like these people look 90 and they're 38 or 42 or 51. Now, don't try to act all pious like you don't think the same thing. Come, you know what I'm talking about. You wonder, how in the world are they only in their 40s or 30s or 50s? They look like the ancient of days there. I think one of the reasons this happens, I mean, there's all types of reasons, but sin ages you. And we know stress ages you. And when you're in sinful situations, there's a lot of stress with that. But here's a little sidebar. Let's not live stressful lives either. Let's observe the Sabbath and be on God's plan. But beyond that, beyond just the normal stress that comes from lifestyle choices, when we also sin, it puts us in stressful situations and sin actually ages us. Look at number two. Here's point number two. A lack of repentance negatively affects us physically and emotionally. Write those down. A lack of repentance negatively affects us physically and emotionally. Now look what the scripture says about this. Now we're continuing our journey through this important song, Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groanings, my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Here was, it was this recognition that a lack of repentance, holding on to sin, holding on to behavior that doesn't please the Lord, actually physically damaged this songwriter. It emotionally shrinks us. This is something that I think we need more awareness of. I'm so glad we live in a culture that's more health conscious. I think what we're learning about nutrition and exercise and things of those nature are an important part of us being holistic people and part of us developing the temple God wants us to be. But one of the things we overlook is we're pursuing health and we're pursuing better nutrition and we're pursuing exercise is the effects sin has on us. A lack of repentance damages us physically, damages us emotionally because the whole body is connected. And so it is that our number one motivation is to please the Lord. That's why we should repent. But I want you to see through the scripture today, there's happiness, there's joy, there's physical and emotional health by being people of repentance. Let me give you a scenario and, and think about this. See if this is going to work. A man and a woman have a huge wedding ceremony. At this wedding ceremony, in front of the church, in front of friends and family members, in front of everyone, they make a covenant. They say, I do, I will. All the important vows they repeat from the preacher. The man tells the woman, I love you. I love you forever. And everyone enjoys that scene, young love, or renewed love, whatever the case is. Then after that ceremony, there's no more dating, no more romance, no more telling the spouse, whether it's a woman to the man or man to the woman, I love you anymore. Why? The deal's done. The event's over. The wedding's sealed. It's, we've done what we're supposed to. We're married now. Now we're roommates. Now we're business partners. How many know that does not work, does it? That does not work at all. 
Why? Because marriage is not an event. Marriage is not a wedding ceremony. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a lifestyle. It's not a one-time occurrence. You don't say, we're married now, and then it's over. You have to continually work on it. And as you continue, continually work on your marriage, there's great, great joy in following God's way for those who are called to be married. In the same way, just as marriage is not an event, marriage is a lifestyle, so it is with repentance. Write it down, number three. Repentance is not an event, but a lifestyle. At the end of this sermon, we, we always give time for you to respond to the word of God, whether it's quiet reflection at your seat, whether it's taking communion at the front or the back, whether it's kneeling at these steps to represent an altar, whether it's going to our prayer team, as, as much as we can. And in recent months, I can't think of a Sunday where we haven't given time for us to respond to God's word. And that's somewhat of an event. You deal with it right then. Many times, many times, even as I've preached to myself, uh, God's words come through me as a vessel. I've repented of sin after I've preached. Often it happens before I preach as God prepares me for the sermon. So we'll repent here. We'll go to a prayer partner. And before we take communion, we take it in a worthy manner and we examine our heart. And it's somewhat like of an event. But we're wrong if we think that God deals with us in an issue at a church service like this. And we pray with someone. We get ready for communion. We do that. And then we're done with that issue. That's where we get disillusioned. Because it would be easy to say, hey, one-time repentance and the problem's solved. One-time repentance and I'm never going to have to deal with that issue again. One-time repentance and I'm never going to deal with that habit or that weakness or that personality deficiency. It's never going to be an issue again. It seldom, it's possible it happens that way. But I would say that the New Testament tells us that the way we live our lives, as Paul and Peter and John and James are writing to specific people in a specific church, he's talking about relationships, excuse me, relationships and habits and discipline. And so we may repent in a church service, but repentance doesn't end there because repentance is not an event. It's a lifestyle. And so we keep very short accounts with the Lord. It's part of his gift to us. We're people of repentance. We don't repent at a church service and then wait for the next time the pastor deals with that specific issue again. Uh, for teenagers, young adults, we don't repent at youth camp and then wait for fall re retreat for our next time of repentance. We don't wait until the next Sunday even for our next time of repentance. We are people of repentance that are walking in a lifestyle of repentance because uh, our mind and our hearts continually drift away from the ways of God and we need God to bring us back in. We need to get re-centered on him, refocused on him. That's why a scripture that has helped me more than any scripture, and unfortunately I wrote it down incorrectly in your notes, so write it down, Proverbs 24, 16. This is gonna be good, this is gonna help you. Proverbs 24, 16. The Proverbs are so important because they're standalone sayings that the Holy Spirit gives life to. Look at this. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he will get up, but the wicked will stumble into ruin. This is so important. This does not mean that the eighth time you fall down, you're not righteous anymore. I'd be in trouble if that was the case. 
Seven in the Hebrew is an infinite number. It's talking about a continuation, a number that goes on and on and on and on again, the perfect, complete number. What this scripture is saying, that a righteous man will fall over and over and over and over again. But what makes a man or woman righteous is not that he does not or she does not fall. It means when they fall, they don't stay in the mud. They don't stay in the pit. Through the power of Jesus, they rise up again. Through the power of Jesus, they get up again. Through the power of Jesus, they get up and realize that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. The accuser of our faith, Satan, wants to tell us we've tripped, we've fallen, that's who we are. We're meant for the mud, we're meant for the pit, we're meant for a life of defeat. But the Spirit of God is saying, because I've paid the price, and I've paid the penalty, and because I have power within you, rise up again. Oh man of God, oh woman of God, don't stay down, don't stay defeated, rise up again. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise up again. Listen, my job is not to excuse sin and say, oh, you know, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, let's just go out and sin this week, right? That's not good pastoring. So I want us to be more like Jesus. I want us to say no to sin. But here's the deal. In this world where Satan has a dominion, Satan has a certain rule over different areas, and, and he, he is uh, attacking us, the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Satan is after our spiritual life. The enemy, he, he, he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so until he is thrown into the abyss, until he is thrown into the pit, we're gonna struggle with sin. But here's the thing. We're gonna struggle, but we're gonna overcome. We're gonna struggle, but we will not be defeated. We're gonna struggle, but when we fall, we're gonna rise up again because greater is the one who is within us than he, the enemy, who is in the world. And so it is this. So it is that I am not trying to excuse sin or encourage you to sin or, or to call for a lackadaisical attitude towards that. But I know this, that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse contextually is not a one-time event. This is not a one-time occurrence. This is a God who's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's advocating for us. He is praying for us, and he's already made a way for when we do struggle or we do make a mistake, that Jesus has gone before us, and he's paid the price, and he has made a way for us to be overcomers. He has made a way for us to get up again. So he wants us to walk in the righteousness. Jesus is available as soon as we sin, as soon as we make a mistake, as soon as we stumble, He's made a way for us to rise up again in his name. Amen? Let me give you another scenario. Dad tells the boys, no throwing the ball inside. Or the pastor tells the youth group, junior high boys, no throwing the ball in the lobby. That's a little too close to home, so let's go back to the hypothetical. So dad tells boys, don't throw the ball inside. You need to get out, fresh air. He leaves. Dad leaves. Boys continue to throw the ball. Lamp breaks. What instinctively do the boys do at this time? Yeah, they hide, right? They hide. That's in our nature. Our nature is to hide when we sin. Our nature is to hide our mistake, hide our transgression. Let's go back and read about our ancestors, Adam and Eve, 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, who Adam and Eve are a prototype of us today. They're not really these distant people as much as they are a prototype of who we are also. As the Adam, the new Adam, has come through Christ. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths loin for themselves. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And this is what we're moving towards here. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is in our nature. Our ancestors did it. Cain hid after he murdered Abel. Gideon hid from the call of the Lord. We could probably do a really effective study all through the Old Testament of people who hid into the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira hid their deception to the church. When we do things that violate God's law, we hide. We hide. Just like the little boys. They knew they weren't supposed to play ball inside. They broke the lamp, and so they went and they hid. But let's contrast that story about those boys hiding from their dad with another circumstance. You may have seen it happen even this weekend, here in Halloween weekend, that often in different stores, different places we shop, maybe in our neighborhood, something scary happens, something alarming happens to the child. They don't have the, the cognitive ability to realize this is just fake. It's just a teenager dressed, dressed in a black robe or whatever the case is. And so they are scared. What does the child instinctively do when he's scared, who does he run to? He runs to the father. He runs to the father because if the child can get to the father, he knows he's protected. If the child can get to the father, he or she knows they are safe. Instinctively, especially if a family unit's together, the child will run to the father, the one who is the strongest, the one who has authority. Here's the last point I wanna make today. Repentance changes our hiding place. When we're walking in a lifestyle of sin or unconfessed sin, or we're not quick to confess our sin to the Lord, we hide from the presence of God. We don't want to go to church. We don't want to be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to hear songs of praise. We don't want to do our devotional. We don't want to be around our Christian friends. We want to hide from the Lord because we have unconfessed sin in our life. And we begin to hide just like Adam and Eve did and just like others in the Bible have hid from the Lord, just like the little boys hide from dad when they broke the lamp. But look what Psalms 32, 7 says as we close up this psalm. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. How many know that it's good to change our hiding place? This scripture tells us today that this is a God we don't have to hide from. This is a God we don't have to run from. This is a God we don't need to uh, avoid. This is a God who's drawing us to himself. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it 
and they are safe. This is a metaphor in the ancient days of what would happen in an agrarian culture when an attacking army would come. Those who were cultivating the land would run to the city and they would run to the military tower and they would go into the tower where there were weapons and there was a trained army and once they got to the tower, they were protected. Once they got to the tower, they were safe. Once they were in the tower, they would survive. The scripture says the name of the Lord is a strong tower and that's where the righteous go and that's where they're safe. Our God is not a God to avoid. Our God is not a God to resist. Our God is not a God to hide from. When we understand that repentance is a gift, we're not running from God, we're running to God. We're not uh, hiding from God, we're hiding in God. It changes our hiding place and that is why we can say, God, you are my hiding place you protect me from trouble. Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me today? I just want to thank you, Lord. That which I've received from the Lord, I pass on to you. And I just believe that today God's marking your life. He's marking his characteristics of Psalm 32. Listen, this is a gift to you today. That God's character is being revealed to you. That the Lord is causing you to, to turn to him. Many of us have quit turning to the Lord. And there's many, many reasons why. Sometimes it's because we're, um, we're, we're so defeated in our mind. And, and we, we're so down upon ourselves that the very one we need to turn to is the very one we're avoiding. And the Lord says, come unto me today. All you who are weary, all you who are heavy burdened, can I tell you that the, the, the heaviest burden you're going to have is sin upon your life. And that's more than all the different things about our schedule and about our lifestyle. The burden of sin is so heavy, it'll affect and touch every area of your life. It will make everything more difficult. But the Lord says, you come to me who are heavy heavy with burdens, and I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you rest from your sin. I'm going to give you rest from that thing which is suffocating you. I'm going to give you rest from that which is dehumanizing you. I'm going to give you rest from that that is shrinking you, and I'm going to take that cloud off of you. I'm going to let those chains fall off of you because I've already made the way. Listen, this is not something God might do. This is something God has already done. Do you see that? It's not something we have to wonder, will God do it? God's already done it, and he's made the way, and he's He's telling us, cry out to me, people. Cry out to me. Turn to me. Don't turn to yourself. Don't turn to your own discipline. Don't turn to your own ability. Turn to the Lord in humility. And when you turn to the Lord, he's going to set you free. Time and time and time and time again, there is no limit to the grace of God. There's no limit to the mercy of God. You don't run out of chances after the eighth time. Over and over and over again, he's going to show himself to you. He's going to show himself strong to you. 